Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Jonathan, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you guys too. Uh, I listened to a few of your guys' podcasts in preparation. I told Renee, I was like, these authors and agents, they're really gushing over each other. I don't know if you could muster something up. (laughs) I don't know if you'll be able to muster it up, but they're really nice to each other. I was like, I don't know what we're going to say. That's really funny. I, went, I held a mirror up and she was breathing. So I was like, yes, be my agent. <laughs> oh my God. I was, only, I was the only one that could decipher those pictures you drew for your inquiry. <laughs> she was like, you could string two sentences together. So I thought, I, I'm in. I'm taking it. I said it. seven words. Don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> All right. So why don't you tell us how you met, how you knew you were a good fit for each other and what the call was like? Sure. Jonathan is under the impression that it took a day that he sent me the email and I jumped on it immediately. Because, you know, I wasn't doing anything. But it didn't take a day, Jonathan. It took a week, my friend. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. So, yes, he sent to the submissions. My partner forwarded it to me and said it was funny. They were just talking about West Virginia just the night before. And I looked at it, and he actually sent a sample with it. And I read it. And a week later, I contacted him. I said, you know, I'm reading your sample and actually enjoying it a lot. Could you send me the rest of the manuscript? I was looking back at emails, just trying to remember, because as Jonathan will say, it meant more to him than it did to me when- She doesn't remember our meet cute. (laughs) She has no recollection. So obviously it meant more to me. Well, okay. You can't describe it. that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the problem with the agent-client relationship, right? We have to be monogamous as the client. We just have one love for them and they spread their love all around. They have clients all over the place. He's likening agents to pimps. So my stable. <laughs> Your words. The grass is always greener for the agent. They're always looking for something better. It's really not a fair relationship. What Jonathan <laughs> says is that he wants an open relationship. So he wants to have multiple agent partners, <laughs> but, <laughs> but he can't. The book was really good. So it was a month actually. And then I wrote back to him and I said, I'm really enjoying this. It was the start of a series. When you hear as an agent, especially you hear the PI doing this or something, you're like, oh no, you know, another noir, another PI. Tell me, is he grizzled? Is he on the verge of divorce? Is he an alcoholic? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, define alcoholic. Okay. (laughs) What's his drink of choice? Bourbon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm full throttle. Um, That's Julie's favorite too. Wasn't derivative. Jonathan's voice, all joking aside, is amazing. He's a fantastic writer and I tease him to the ends of the earth, but he's actually an, a fantastic writer. He started off in Hollywood, which he'll tell you about later. And he was acting and all that. So he has some nice insight that he was talking about regarding what writers should expect, especially when querying an agent and how long it takes and things that you're told. So he's got some good insight on that. It was like February 2nd, See, it did mean something when I went back. I know, to she remembers. <laughs> no, because I went back to my emails. Come on, Julie. She, she had to do the research. <laughs> on February 2nd, my life changed. <laughs> I, I think it was 2015, because it was it six was. years ago. It was, I don't, you know, it, it was a bit ago. And actually, I was snowed in. So that is why you got so much attention, because I was snowbound and could not escape. So I read, 
but no, it was amazing. So then he suggested that we have a phone call. And then I said, great, what about this time? And then he went, no, that's okay. I'm busy. (laughs) So go ahead, Jonathan, tell her how you played hard to get then. So my recollection of this, because I will say in all earnestness, that getting the call from her and talking to her and her talking about how much she loved my book was probably the greatest moment in my artistic life. If I had to sing about one moment, it just filled me up. That was it. And I lived in Los Angeles at the time, so it was like 90 there. I remember I was like willfully naive when it came to lit culture. I didn't really want to immerse myself in the culture. I immersed myself in writing. I read all the time. I always wanted to be a writer. I moved to Los Angeles to be an actor and a filmmaker, but I always wanted to write books as well. But I was so immersed in that culture and film culture. And uh, it tends to be a little corrosive at times if you immerse yourself too much when you're always talking about it, which is great. And I love it. And I, I don't live in Los Angeles anymore. I live in Ohio now, so I miss it. I miss being able to have those artistic conversations. But as an actor, you would get in these conversations and it would inevitably turn dark into like, why am I not working? Why are we not working? How come we can't get a break? So when I started writing, I didn't want to get involved in that kind of culture at all. I wanted to just be pure. I wanted to just do my best to write the best book I possibly could. I took three years to write the first draft of the first book. And then I got some feedback. I took a whole nother year rewriting that however many times before I was comfortable saying, okay, I think this is what I would like it to be. I had no idea how to query agents. So I started doing research on that and I developed a list of agents to send it to. And Renee was number one on the list, literally number one. Because I saw where she was doing Thriller Fest and she described what she was looking for in a writer and a manuscript. And she, I thought, hit my manuscript to a T. So I was like, okay, she's number one. But then I developed like a list of 50 agents. I had the top 10 or 15 that I thought would be the best fits. And literally, like I said, Renee was number one. And then I had a bunch of other ones that might, might work. They all have different stipulations. Ten, they want to see 10 pages. They wanted a two-page summary. They wanted paragraph summary. So I decided to do three or four days. So I'd probably only gotten through 10 when Renee called me the next day. Okay. This doesn't happen. I, I know you're not immersed in the culture. Right. Well, <laughs> this I, is totally weird. So everything I'd ever read about, it was like, oh, expect to hear something from six months later, eight months later, a year later, three months later, you're not going to hear anything right away. So that's what I expected. So when I got her email that she wanted to see the full manuscript a week later, number one, I was like, fantastic. Number two, I was like, what's wrong with her? <laughs> if she's responding to me so quickly. No one else would talk to me. You were the only one who answered my email. Yeah. I was super excited and I sent it in. She called me on the phone and I got the New York number and I just started driving somewhere. I remember being so jittery. I pulled the car over and we had this wonderful conversation. And as she mentioned, I'd been immersed in you know Hollywood culture and acting culture for so long. And I'd probably gone through 10 to 12 agents. When I talked to Renee, she just convinced me of how much she loved the book. And I just got the sense from her that she was tough and strong and smart and would fight for me and really stand on my side. I got that sense from her. Mm. And that's everything I wanted. I just wanted somebody that would always stand with me and fight for me. And so I remember I played it cool. I was like, okay, I've got another submissions out. We'll see how it goes. I just didn't want to say yes to anything right immediately. But then the more I replayed our conversation in our head, the more I was like, what are you doing? This is everything that you want that you've never had in the acting world. And so I signed with her. I've been grateful every day since that I did. Oh my gosh. That is such a great story. 
Renee, as this was happening, how were you reacting when he said, oh, yeah, it's with other people? Were you, he's well, just messing with me or how did you react to that? No, remember, I was snowed in. So I was absolutely desperate for anybody who would talk to me. I had read through everything. And this one, like I said, he strung seven words together that made sense. I was all for it. I overlooked how he wrote in alphanumeric. It was all right. I figured he has his own style. I try not to judge people. No, the call was great. I think Jonathan failed to mention how I may not be everybody's cup of tea in the sense that I'm very straightforward. I'm very honest. And I don't like to blow smoke or couch what I'm going to say. If your writing needs help, I want to help you. And I'll do it tactfully as I can, except in Jonathan's case, then if he needed it, I would just absolutely lay it on the line. But he doesn't, which is unfortunate because I'd really like to zing him a few times. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but no, you have to have a thick skin as a writer to begin with because of all the rejection that comes. And as agents, we get a rejection too. I love his book. We put it out there, we put it out there, we put it out there. And it's finding the haystack with the needle in it first before you get that editor to purchase it. We understand what the writer is going through. And unfortunately, Jonathan has been extremely spoiled to get such a response so quickly because in the history of literature and in literary and publishing, nobody gets that treatment. So he's just, you know, <laughs> he's just the golden child. As I said, for 15 years, in Los Angeles, I had no good experiences and no luck with agents. So I had no expectation. So when I did, I was like, oh, cosmically, something's going right, finally. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between having an agent as an actor and having an agent as a writer? Well, obviously, my experience is only with Renee. So I can only speak to what it's like with her. But as an actor, you know, there's so many people trying to do the exact same thing you're doing and so many agents. And most of the time, they're just like, yeah, we'll give this a go. We'll see what happens. And they send you on a few auditions if they can even get you in the room. And if you don't book something almost right away with them, they kind of let you fade away. At least that was my experience. So it, it was hard just to get an audition. It was hard to get an agent. And then it's hard for them to get you audition. I never had the experience of someone who was really willing to stand with you through thick and thin and respected you for your art form. And it's a tough business. That's a very tough business to be in. If you're not with certain agencies, you almost don't have a chance. You're just going for scraps, like wow. little one-line parts at best. You get lucky if you get a good audition of something that will actually see on TV. And with Renee, like I said, she brought to the table in the writing world something I never had in the acting world, which was somebody I knew, no matter what happened, how many failures we faced, we'd be facing them together. Oh, um, and honesty. And yeah, and honesty, and not blowing smoke. So much smoke is blown. And some people mean it. <laughs> And like in Los Angeles, you throw a rock down the street and you're going to hit somebody who's very talented because so many people congregate there. So it's just tough. So people might mean it when they blow smoke and tell you how great things are going to be or how great you are. Well, but, Jonathan, uh, you actually made it to television, so. I got on a couple things. Yeah. I got on a, few th a couple yeah. things. Can we talk about that? Because that was my next question. I love sure. when people like lead me into the next question. I'm like, oh, there you <laughs> go. So I'm curious how being Hollywood, being an actor, and I saw you're also a producer. Is that correct? I produced little things. Like yeah. I produced short films because I wanted to be a filmmaker. So yeah, I, I did so, some short films. So with that, like how does working in that business, using that kind of narrative eye help you in your writing? That's a good question. I think for me, I studied with an acting teacher there for a long time. And one of the things he did was he allowed you to write your own material. If you wanted to be a writer, you could literally write scenes and then see them on their feet and practice them. So I think, especially for dialogue 
and just for the overall arc of a scene, where to get in, where to get out, what works, what doesn't. I practiced that for years in this class and it's really the draw to keep me coming back. When I transitioned into writing fiction, it became much easier to start. I've been writing screenplays and things like that for a long time. The skill I had, I think, with storytelling had been honed to a large degree. So I didn't go through the growing pains that if I would just start it out at 20 that I would have otherwise. I wrote a novel in my early 20s. No one will ever see it on the face of the earth. They offered one writing class in college and I took it. And my professor probably didn't even remember me, but he was complimenting me of my work in that class. So I sent him the first 30 pages of that novel and he ripped like the first five pages apart. He just ripped them apart. It's probably the best thing that ever happened. And that's what teachers do. I mean, yeah. I'm a teacher, I do that. <laughs> and it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it allowed me like to go back in and really gut check, is this something I want to do? And I'm gonna, obviously I'm gonna have to get better at it. And I really, I, and from that point on, which was probably 25, I really worked hard to get better before I started writing this one, which I think I started writing my first book at 30 or 31 in the series. So can I just point out, so you made your story sound like it was like, oh, I worked hard in a book, I made my list and I got my agent, but that's not altogether true. Like you've been living, breathing stories for at least over 15 years. And yeah, it's probably been 20, 22, yeah, 23 years. Yeah, so you've done your diligence. And even, yeah, even when I was in high school, I convinced her to let us do a group film to make a mm -hmm. movie instead of doing just like a group presentation on the Civil War. So smart. And then I remember my baseball coach worked at the news station. So he let me come at night when no one was there and edit together. And we had this whole presentation. And it was really just like this Civil War short film. And there was nothing educational about it. <laughs> so it was something I always wanted to do. But growing up in West Virginia, you don't see a real pathway to actually doing it, especially back then when the world was less connected. But I think that also shows that even if you're in a remote Kansas or wherever, you can get your voice out there, but it does take work and it does take tenacity and you have to just keep trying. Your first book got ripped apart and then you worked really hard and, and worked on your craft. And this other book made its way to me. And you now remember the hardship that we went through trying to get that book published. Can you tell us that story? Uh, yeah, I, I don't remember how many submissions we did, but I'm going to say it was 20 to 30 and we could not get someone to take it. So we went to Audible Originals and they loved it. And his editor, Steve, is fantastic and polished it even more. These books are, are amazing. But with Audible Originals, once those audio rights are gone, there's no print. Mm -hmm. And that actually is a heartbreak for, for me. And I know for Jonathan too, because for those people who aren't audio people, like I prefer to have the book in my hand. I, I want to read the words. And especially as much as Jonathan loves his narrator, who love, love, loves Jonathan. It's amazing. His first book was great. His second book in the series that also with Audible, Hum Little Birdie, the first one was what we end up calling Cash City. And then the second one had a minor character in there spun off is even more amazing than the first book. And so Hum Little Birdie, that really made me upset that it's not in print for people to read this and hear his voice and see the skill that he's worked so hard to show. And that's done really well. And now he's on his third book, Bad Men Will Come. If I could get it in print, that is actually the one thing that I have tried very hard, continue to try. So unlike Jonathan's other agents, you know, let them fade away. I'm still trying to do everything I can to have everybody see just how great he has become. He's an amazing writer.
In a way, that's fitting, too, because audiobooks are, to me, the experience is somewhere between reading and watching something. It's almost between books and theater. So it, in a sense, makes sense that that's where it is. As a reader, too, you want to hear that voice and see the things in your own head. And somebody's inflection or somebody else is reading it to you will change that perception as well. But they do a fantastic job over there. Absolutely. And we're grateful every day that they took it because he's at least out there right now. This new one's going to be out in September and uh, there'll be more in that series. And then he'll be doing some other stuff as well. Yeah. Do you guys listen to books? Do you guys listen to Audible or audio? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I love Ari. I don't know if you've ever heard any Ari Flacos. Yeah, I heard your sample. It was amazing. He's yeah. absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. He's an actor in a renowned group out of New York called the Worcester Group, uh, a theater troupe that travels the world. What's um, it like to meet your narrator? I got to meet him when I lived in Los Angeles. He came through on a tour and I got to meet him while, as he was just starting to do the first book, which was fantastic. I don't think many people get to meet their narrator. My relationship with him has been phenomenal. I've loved every second of it. It's been really rewarding to be with them. And it was just nice to get to know someone on a personal level. Much like with Renee, we never met. And I did a job in New York for a one-day job. And I flew into New York. And we met for drinks one night. And it's just so nice to be able to meet face-to-face and get to know each other. I remember she missed the train. We were having so much fun. <laughs> we kept it going. We kept the party going. And it was, yeah, I'll have it was, to send you the picture that we took in front of. I think we were standing by Macy's or something. It was so touristy looking. It was funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that please send it. I was supposed to do three lines in a movie the next day, and we were out late. It was good. Did you get your three lines done? Did you nail those three lines? Oh, I think I was on the cutting room floor. I don't even think I made the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Let's go back to some of your content, Jonathan. Cash City is inspired by an ongoing heroin epidemic. And so can you tell us how you slice together true inspiration stories from what you in your community into fiction? Completely. So I grew up in Huntington, West Virginia, which is... For West Virginia, it's a big town, like 50,000 people. Biggest, it's, it's like the metropolis for that area. And it was a nice blue-collar town to grow up in. When you're growing up there, you don't know any different. It's very idyllic. But as soon as I left, which was early 2000s, drugs and the heroin epidemic really took hold in that area. Right on the southern Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia border. And it really took hold in the town. And a lot of bad things happened. I was like, this is where I would love to set a story. I'd love to tell the story about this town and how it turned. Because almost overnight, this stuff started happening. Gangs came in from bigger cities. And the police force was not equipped at that time to really know what to do. And so as a setting, I always thought it was a right setting for storytelling. And I love my hometown. I, I didn't want to give it a bad name by any means. I, I absolutely love going up there. I love going back there whenever I can. My parents still live there. So I had that in the back of my mind for years. I would love to set a story. I didn't know if it would be a screenplay. I didn't know what it would be. And then someone had recommended all the old noirs to me. And like I said, I was very willfully naive about lit culture. So I didn't know that everybody tried to replicate those old noirs. And it's probably a good thing I didn't because that would have probably been discouraging. But I thought if I could take that feeling of those old noirs, just the cynicism and the, the way they make you feel, not necessarily the language or anything else, but just that feeling that they give you and set it in that world, that could be a good way to tell a story about that world. And I, I fell in love with the Hammets and the Chandlers and the Jim Thompsons and the James Canes. And that's actually why I named it the Kane Cities. I named it in homage to James Kane. And so that, that kind of combination of factors was the seed of the first book. Would you be willing to read your first page for us? Tell us about the trilogies. Can they be consumed on a solo basis, or if you read the first one, 
it's going to be more of a series. It's going to be the Kane City series because there's like little characters that come out of each one. In the first book where he introduces Malik, who will come back later on, Malik was a prostitute who had a daughter. And that daughter, who was a baby at that time, is Birdie in the next book, Grown Up. I don't want to give away the spoilers of what happens in the first book then so you don't know how Birdie grew up and then what happens to Birdie in the second book. The second one I couldn't put down. And the third one made his narrator cry and the engineer. Like I said, when Renee called me, it was such a great moment for me. At that moment, I thought to myself, nothing else happens. I've got that. I've got this person who I respect so much who feels this way about my work. And then those kind of instances, like Ari was texting me and he texted me, you made me cry today. And it was pathetic because I looked up and the engineer was also crying. <laughs> and he had a lot of nice things to say about this last book. And again, I was just like, okay, if nothing else happens. I've got that. That's a nice moment. I'm bummed that you didn't narrate, Jonathan. I appreciate that. He has that West Virginian accent. It might have been fun to have him. Oh, have him read it? With the actor voice, yeah. Jonathan well, can't read. It's sad. What's funny is when I was talking to him about the characters, and I was like, this one character is seductively talking to the lead character in this one scene. I was like, I don't know how you're going to do that, but Godspeed. Good luck with that. <laughs> He's so good. He pulls all these characters off. Would you be willing to read your first page for us? Okay. So this is chapter one of Cash City, the Kamek business. Until he came knocking on my door, I'd never seen Joe Kamek. Small towns like Kane City, West Virginia, lull a person into believing that they've rubbed elbows or traded a light concern about the weather with nearly every citizen. You came because of Tom and Mary walking down the street and their parents, their kids, their cousins, their cousins, cousins. That's all there is to know. It's a quaint little notion, and I understand the peace of mind that it might provide. It's false and it's dangerous and it allows for some nasty vices to trot right into a town, unannounced and unnoticed, until they've already taken root. And the good citizens cry out, how could this be happening in our town, in our neighborhood, in the house next door? They complain of the entire world going to rot. They throw their hands up as if the moral and physical decay were an act of God, as if their own apathy had nothing to do with it, never realizing their sense of safety was nothing but a shared mirage. Not that I particularly gave a fuck about Kane City, or anybody in it. I was standing at the windows of my office, taking a call from a potential client and watching the car switch by down the avenue. An ugly piece of weather had moved through the, in the morning, leaving behind clogged drains, swamp streets, and lashing winds that rattled the windows in their frames. Listen, lady, I said into the phone, and that's it. That's the end of the first page. <laughs> the descriptions are great. It's very vivid, very fast, but it doesn't feel like you're slowing anything down to tell us what it looks like and feels like. Do you have any tips for writers who need to set the scene quickly? Yeah, there's so many different ways you can start. You know, I start from the outside in. And so I wanted to set up in as few words as possible, the setting, the town, as we discussed earlier, and then never mention it again. And then it's just there. So once you have it there, it's always there. They have that in the back of their mind as the baseline. So I just wanted to hone it down to where you get it, you get in, you get out, and you're on with the story. Obviously, you can just start with the story, but I wanted the town to be like another character. So I started with that. And I think it's so interesting that you use this classic genre and feel to describe a very modern, timely problem. I think that's very cool, too. That's what I was going for. So hopefully I pulled it off. I think so. I think it's clear on the first page. Yeah. As I was listening to your first page and thinking of your story, I wondered this question. So I saw that you're a dad and you're writing about a man who lost his son. And this is a lot. And as a parent myself, I was actually curious if opening up this part of your imagination <laughs> created a 
cavernous vaults. For me, it's like, where, where do you write from? What inspires you to write? What makes you feel the most? And I think a great thing to write about is fear. What you fear about is, is just automatically a great thing to write about because it's so on the surface, it's so easy to touch. I started writing this book around the time I had my first son. And I was like, well, that would be my greatest fear. By all means, that would be my greatest fear. I didn't want my character to be like the typical old and detective. It's just case of the week type of book. Uh, and those are great. I love those. But I just wanted a little bit more depth to his purpose. And so I was writing from fear. I found that I've, a lot of the things I've written have been from fear. I should write about dreams more often. A question that comes off of that, which is what a lot of writers also want to know, is sometimes when you feel something deeply, something is real, it's hard to get that emotion on the page. Or anything that you do that allows you to have the clarity to write it and meanwhile get your emotions across. I experienced that in this third book. I wrote about some very personal things. And I think you get that advice a lot. And I'm giving that advice. I'm saying the good thing about being an artist of any kind is you can use it in your art. And I've been through quite a bit. My family's been through quite a bit in the last couple of years. Not to get too deep into it, but my son's been ill for two years, my oldest son. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, thanks. He's, he's doing much better. He's getting much better. That actually, yesterday, they all started school. I have three sons. People were saying, maybe you should use this in a story. You should write a story about this. And I was like, no. But I was like, but this is the exact advice I give other people. And even my son, who has been honest, he's very creative and he's a great writer. And I would tell him that. I would say, the great thing is all this pain you're going through, you can use it. And it's true. But then when you actually do it, it's a whole different thing. So I try to incorporate this into my story a little bit. And one, you can never get it all on the page. Like when it's personal like that for you, you feel like you want to explain everything. You want them to get the whole experience. And that's impossible to do. So all you can really do is serve your story as it gave it this book a depth of emotion that i've never written before and i think hopefully that'll come across to the people who listen to it are there steps that you took to be able to do that because they you know, like jessica had pointed out earlier uh, you set the scene for your location without bogging down the tempo of the plot that we didn't slog through a bunch of stuff so is there a way that you can explain to a writer out there who maybe has some pain that they want to give to one of their characters, how they go about writing that without weighing everything down? That is a good question. I think what I mean by serving the story was that illness provided uh, a drive for the main character. One of his main drives is to make sure his son's okay and to figure out what's going on and to, how to fix it. And so that provided a drive for him to then go out, maybe make some questionable decisions. So it serves his storyline. It's not about the illness. It is to, to some degree because it's in the book, but his illness serves to drive the main character. But you as the writer writing that character, mm -hmm. was there something that you had to do or what you say, or are you just putting the words down there and just making sure that you're not overdoing it? If I tell you I had this issue and I want to put it on there, how are you going to tell me to approach it? Man, you're a tough inquisitor. Because writers are out there listening. And I know as somebody, as a writer or whatever, when I'm listening and, and I want to know how somebody does something, you know, I yell at Oprah all the time. I'm like, just <laughs> let them tell them how they did it. It became very evident to me when I started writing the scenes. Because again, this is a very much a, a crime story. But it, at the heart of it is this love story between the father and son. And when I was writing those scenes, it was very difficult for me to write, to be honest. Because I was actually living through some of the things I was writing about. At the same time, it wasn't past tense. It was actually happening. So it's not me by any means, but I did use uh, what we're going through. And I actually asked my son, 
for permission. I was like, listen, I would like to write about what's been going on with you. It wouldn't be you, but I would like to take some things that have happened as inspiration for the story. And he was like, that's cool. It's not me, right? I was like, no, it's not you. And then he was all for it. Because I did feel at a certain time, I was like, is this an invasion of his privacy? But it's not him. And he gave me permission. But getting back to your question, I would say, once I started writing it, I made sure not to be informational. I didn't want it to be just like an info dump, but like, here's what's going on. That's what's difficult to avoid. Is there a way that you prevented it from becoming an info dump? What I did was I made it kind of the start of things going wrong to where nobody knew what was going on. So figuring out what was going on was actually actionable. And there was a conversation about it. It was trying to find out how someone was feeling, what he was feeling, why he was feeling that way. So conversations came naturally. And the audience is with the father and on the same journey as him trying to figure out what's going on. Jonathan, I think when you go through something like this, because I did as well with my son, and it's just omnipresent. Like when you live something like that, it's omnipresent in your life, no matter what you're doing. And I'm assuming that's what you did in your story too, that it was always there and seen, and you could sometimes just touch it like a hot little ember and just move on. Is that how it worked for you? I think that's how it worked for me if I did it. Yeah, it just became part of the story. Once I started on that path and, and figured out, okay, I can't just tell what's going on with him and try to elicit empathy. That's not a story. That's just telling somebody what's happening. He's trying to do right by his son and many other things in the book. And it just becomes one piece of a much larger puzzle. It's not the puzzle. It's just one small piece that plays itself out naturally as opposed to trying to force anything. As a parent, you're like, oh, I hope I can convey what this was actually like. But then as a writer, you have to be like, no, you can't do that. If it serves your story, you do it. If not, cut it. It can't be in there. So and you it. just laid out the foundation, wrote it how you wanted to write it, and then went back and saw ways that you could hone it and smooth it out to exactly what would serve the story. Is that correct? Yeah. I learned very early on in early scenes. I was like, I don't want to spend too much time. You just want to get in and get out of the scenes. Just like any other scene. You want to give the information that's pertinent in the best way you can without being in any kind of dump, whether it's through dialogue or whatever it is, or just the interactions. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the obvious next question. Renee, are you open for queries? Yeah, I'm open for queries. I'm on manuscript wish list. You can see some stuff there. And also on faculty for the Manuscript Academy. Yes, and I'm faculty. I'm always happy to help for developmental editing. And where can we find you both online? I'm at, for my submissions, just go to the manuscript wish list and you'll see where the submission requirements are. And Jonathan, he's not allowed online. To be honest with you, I should have more of an online presence than I do. I have an Instagram and I have a professional Facebook page. I think both those things are called Jonathan Frederick Official, but that's it for me. I should do more. I've been telling him that for years. He doesn't do more. Don't listen to him. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Julie, we could give away a few copies. Yeah. Do you have a secret word? We could do bourbon. Okay. So the first three people to email academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with bourbon in the subject line will get a copy of the book. Unfortunately, no actual bourbon. So feel free to sip on some as you read the book. Thank you so much for joining us. I think it's going to be really great for people to see that an author-agent relationship isn't just one thing. It seems like the two of you have a lot of fun and know exactly how to make the other laugh. And I think that's rare and lovely and great for people to see or hear. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.